Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. And um, as I told the band in the back, I forgot my hearing aids this morning. So if I give you a blank stare at the door, it's not that I'm being rude. It's that I have no idea what you're saying to me. So uh, they will be delivered at the break and uh, I will be attending second service. So I can't hear anything. So you're going to have to listen to me because I can't even hear what I'm saying. So looking forward to our time together this morning on this Palm Sunday. I'll also remind you that this Wednesday night we will be in First Samuel chapter 19. And uh, as we have uh, become now deep into the month of April, we haven't studied our PowerPoint verse for the month, but it is going to be our subject next Sunday morning. We'll look at our PowerPoint verse uh, and those surrounding it concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And I'll remind you in advance that he is risen and he is alive forevermore. Amen. So this morning, would you open your Bibles to John chapter 12? John chapter 12. We'll look at verses 12 through 26. Now, the Passion Week is obviously upon us and we arrive at a point in history that brings our minds to the fact that this is the very reason Jesus came into the world. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh for the purpose of dying for our sins. He said in John 12, 27, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour, this point in time. Now we're going to examine the events leading up to the purpose of Christ coming in the hour that uh, he would hang on the cross through the lens of John's gospel. And John wrote his gospel last, and he is an aged apostle, and he has a rather interesting perspective in considering the things we'll look at this morning. Now we need to set the stage a bit as John records events unwritten in the synoptic gospels or the historical gospels and he omits some things while the other authors included things that John did not take note of. That's going to be mentioned in our text but John is not going to say much about the events regarding the procurement of the donkey that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on only that it fulfilled scripture. Matthew covers this in much greater detail. And thus John is seemingly recalling events from his age and his looking back, not from the historical perspective, but he is looking at them from the perspective of what they mean and how they apply to our lives. Now, the scene we're about to walk in is this, or walk into is this. John 12, 9 through 11, the verses preceding ours, tell us a great many of the Jews knew that he, Jesus, was there. And they came not only for Jesus' sake, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and did what? Believed in Jesus. Now, up to this point, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus had healed the sick. He had given sight to the blind. He had restored hearing to the deaf. 
He had cast out demons. He had been transfigured before uh, his disciples, at least three of them, appearing with Moses and Elijah. Thousands had been fed through meager supply on two different occasions. The Sermon on the Mount had now been preached. The woman at the well had now been met. And a man, now four days dead, had been brought back to life. Now Jesus at this point had also said this in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now, in light of all that Jesus had said, in light of all that he had done, including raising Lazarus from the dead, it seemed to solidify the two positions that are held by all humans even today. Listen, you are either for Jesus or you are in opposition to him. You are either for or against. Amen? Amen. Now, what we're going to find in our time this Palm Sunday is not just what identifies the two groups, but rather... What causes people to be against Jesus in spite of all the wonderful things he has done and the wonderful things he is doing today? Do you know that God was working on your behalf all night last night? Do you know that the devil sought to steal, kill, and destroy you all night last night? Yet he who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers, and he was watching over you, and he was watching over me. And yet people still reject and refuse him today. Now, at the time of the triumphal entry, some of the people had in their minds, man, if this guy can raise somebody from the dead, he can certainly lead a revolt against Rome. After all, King David wrote in the Psalms that the coming Messiah was going to do certain things that they were hoping for and trusting in. In Psalm 2, 7-9, King David said, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, this is what the people were looking for. This is what they wanted the Messiah to do, to drive out the Romans, to dash them into pieces and for them to inherit the nations. And with all that they had seen Jesus do, and the city of Jerusalem now filled with Jews for the Passover, and a leader who can even conquer death, they were thinking the time was ripe for a new king, and Jesus was the one they intended to crown. Now, we do know the rest of the story, as we'll look at it Good Friday and next Sunday, because a mere four days later, the cries of the people turned from crown him, to crucify him. And what we're going to examine this morning is really what's happening in our text. And our title is simply, The King, the Crowd, and the Cross. The King, the Crowd, and the Cross is our title today. Now, how could this fervor and excitement to crown Jesus as King turn into cries of crucify him in just four short days? What was the mindset of the onlooking crowd, the ones who cried Hosanna and later turned their back on him and became opposed to him? What could cause such a radical transition of perception of Jesus in such a short length of time? Now, any of you who watch World News Briefing know that I reported on a story this past Thursday 
that atheism is now the largest religion in the United States of America. Atheism is the largest religion by percentage in the United States of America. And yes, it is a religion. It has an opinion concerning God. It has doctrines and precepts that are held by its constituents. And indeed, sadly, rather than Christianity, atheism has now risen to the top in these United States. Now, here's a question. How can a people with our heritage, how can a people with our history turn in a single generation from being for Jesus to being against him? Well, the answers we're going to find this morning are the same ones that took place when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and four days later calls to execute him arose. The same thing is happening in our country and world today. Now, we're going to look at four truths this morning as to why people's desires went from for Jesus to opposing Jesus, from make him king to kill him in less than a week. And what we're going to find is what is happening concerning the king within the crowd that sent him to the cross is still happening today. So would you stand and read with me, please? John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's And Lord, we are thankful for all that this week represents. Thank you for this record of your entry and public acceptance of worship that we now know as Palm Sunday. We thank you, Lord, for what is going to happen this week as well and how you bought us back from the law of sin and death by your own blood on the cross and rose again early in the morning on the first day of the week. Help us, Lord, to recognize the fickleness of the crowd and be both warned and encouraged, God, about the things that we now know to be true of you. Things long proven in the past, things still proven today about the King of kings and Lord of lords. Bless us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, waving palm branches was a customary greeting to a conquering victor or king, be it a general or leader of any kind. And this had been applied in Israel when the Maccabees drove out Antiochus Epiphanes some 150 years earlier. And it's clear that the people were looking to Jesus to be a savior, but saving them from what? Now, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But first of all, the next day recorded here is the 10th of Nisan, 32 A.D. It was a Monday. It was the day that the Passover lamb was to be selected for the sacrifice on the upcoming Friday. The tenth of Nisan had another associated fact with it that's quite interesting, and that is from Daniel 9:25. We're told, "Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two." Weeks. I'll do the math for you since it's early. 69 weeks total. 
the street shall be built again, the wall, even in troublesome times. Now, we don't have time to develop this fully, but let me just say without going into too much detail, the command to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem was given to Nehemiah according to the Jewish calendar on the 1st of Nisan, 445 BC in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Now this equates to March 14th, 445 BC on the Gregorian calendar or the calendar that we follow. Now, we also know from a careful study of Daniel and history that the weeks spoken of in Daniel are actually seven-year periods. They're not weeks of days like we know them, but they are rather weeks of years. And that term that is used in Daniel actually means sevens, that is translated as weeks. So there was 69 seven-year periods of 360 days each from the command to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem given to Nehemiah until Messiah the Prince, until he would be publicly recognized. Now, the next day spoken of here also is the day the Passover lamb was to be selected. And remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus from a distance? He said, behold the what? The Lamb of God, who came for what purpose? To take away the sins of the world. Now, the next day is also exactly 69 seven-year periods from the day the command was given, or 173,880 days later. Now, not only that, but Jesus came into town riding on a donkey, as was prophesied, by Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. He said, the prophet that is, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and bringing what? Salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we just read that quoted here in our text this morning. So the next day is the exact day that the Messiah was prophesied to ride into Jerusalem. The next day is exactly the day the Passover lamb was to be selected for his future sacrifice. The next day Jesus rides into town in the manner the Bible described by Zechariah that he would ride into town some 550 years earlier. Yet, even with all this evidence in front of them, even with all that happened before them, the cries of the crowd would turn from save now, the meaning of Hosanna, to kill him now. Now, why would there be such a shift in thinking in such a short time? Well, here's the first thing I think we need to remember, especially as we engage people around us who reject Christ as Savior and Lord, reject Jesus as the Bible presents him. And one of the reasons is simply this. Rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord requires ignoring obvious truth. Rejecting Jesus as Savior and Lord requires ignoring obvious truth. Listen, everything the Jews had learned about the coming Messiah was happening right before their eyes. Listen, God is still doing great works today. God is still moving today. He is still transforming lives today. Listen, if Christianity were just another religion among the many in the world, then there would be no personal transformation. There would only be self-discipline and efforts to please whatever deity you have. But I'm telling you, God changes people today. 
He changes their lives today. He turns them around. He cleans them up. He sets them off in a new direction, just as he has always been doing. Now, the fact is, people are ignoring that evidence today as well, even though it's right before their eyes, even as the Jews were ignoring the evidence of fulfilled prophecy that was happening right before them. A man born in the city the prophet Micah said he would be born in, in the miraculous manner that Isaiah said he would be born in, who healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, cast out demons as Isaiah said he would. The same man arrives in Jerusalem the day Daniel foretold in the exact manner Zechariah foretold and for the exact reason that the Passover foretold. How could you miss it? And yet, we'll see why in a moment, but sadly, it's no different today. In Romans 1, 20 to 23, we're told, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead, power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise. Do we have people professing to be wise today? Absolutely. Smarter than God, they think. Yet they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Now, nature itself proves there has to be one who is greater than this universe in order for it to exist. Man says, no, evolution is how it all became about. And you know how I like to present the basic of their premise, which is, first there was nothing, then it blew up. That's how everything came into existence, according to those who would believe such foolish things. I'm sorry, I'm going with, in the beginning, a supernatural deity with omnipotent and omniscient wisdom spoke everything into existence, and it all came into being. Now, there's irrefutable evidence of the necessity of an intelligent designer, as many would like to put it today, and that designer is God himself. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, Paul says this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. What are the next four words? According to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and he rose again the third day. Again, what? According to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained in the presence. In other words, many of them are still alive. But some have died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen also by me, Paul says, as one born out of due time. In other words, he wasn't one of the original apostles. Now, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is not just another religious leader or just another good teacher or just another good man who was wrongfully accused and murdered for no good reason. Listen, Jesus isn't just a good man. The evidence says he's the God man. He has come into the world to die for man's sins. And many today say, oh, don't cloud the issue with the facts. We don't want to hear that. We just don't believe it. Now, therefore, 
Ignoring obvious truth is the only way you can reject that Jesus is the only way today. The evidence is irrefutable. The evidence is overwhelming that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And in spite of that, most people say, no, I don't think so. I'm not buying it. So let's keep reading. Verses 16 to 18 will be our next stop. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. Bit of a side note, I always like it when pastors point out that when the Lord called Lazarus from the tomb, he called him by name. For if he would have simply said, come out, they would have all come out because our God has that power. Amen. Now, the cry saved now, Hosanna, back in verse 13, was misplaced because the people did want this king to save them. But they wanted him to save them from Rome and not from sin. Now, John records that not even the disciples caught the significance of everything that had transpired until he was glorified. Now, this could not be said of the Pharisees because they never got it. They never recognized Jesus as Messiah, even though all the evidence was there in the scriptures they claimed to revere. Now, if we step back and look at this scene, what we're going to find is a crowd of people from Bethany headed into Jerusalem who were there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they were met by a crowd coming out of Jerusalem, heading to Bethany. And they met in between. And this frenzy type atmosphere was created, stirring around Jesus and the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Now, one of the things that no one seemed to grasp, or maybe they ignored, is that it was customary for a king who would ride into a territory or city to declare his intention simply by his choice of mount. Now, the donkey was not in any way a demeaning mode of transportation. It was a symbol of peace. Now, I'm not sure why that is, that a donkey was a symbol of peace. They are some of the most stubborn animals that there are, and they're not very peaceful when they want to have their own way. However, at the time, it was a symbol of peace. But if a king rode in on a horse or a steed, he was declaring that he came to conquer. And just his arrival in town on his choice of mount was a message in and of itself. Now, Revelation 19, 11 to 16 gives us some contrast to this scene where John says, I saw heaven open and behold, a what? A white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called what? The Word of God. Who's called the Word of God in John 1? Jesus, obviously. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Did you know you're in the Bible? This is the church right here, coming back with him at the second coming. Clothed in white linen, white and fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them how? 
with a rod of iron is prophesied in Psalm 2. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I could have just told you that Jesus' second coming would be on a white horse. But I wanted to read all that because it's awesome. And it reminds us that he is coming again. It reminds us that he is in charge. And he's coming to straighten out this messed up and Christ-rejecting world. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But the sad truth is that the crowd gathered not because they recognized Jesus' fulfillment of every Passover lamb. Not because they realized it was a significant day prophesied in Nehemiah or about Nehemiah in Daniel. And it wasn't because they understood that there was a message in the manner in which he rode into the city. They were, listen, they were thronging to Jesus because they thought he could make their life more prosperous. Sound familiar? And when they found out his real mission was to deliver them from sin and call them to repentance, their cries turned from crown him to crucify him. Now this gives us a second current reality from this historical event, and that's this. Listen this morning. As much as it may cause us to scratch our heads in disbelief, the fact is this. Many reject Jesus for not being what they want him to be. Many reject Jesus for not being what they want him to be. Is our God a God of blessing? Well, yes, of course he is. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Psalm 103 tells us, and Jesus did come to bring us abundant life, did he not? Yes, but listen, blessings and abundance are the byproducts of confession of sin and repentance. But people want the blessings of God without confession of sin and repentance today. And in Matthew eleven twenty to 24, we're told that Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works have been done because they did not what? They did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, Jesus' earthly headquarters of his ministry, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is rather chilling because as we made the case a few moments ago, God is still doing what he's always done. He is still saving sinners. He is still transforming lives. The evidence is still overwhelming that he is the creator of all things. And as the text introduces to us, these cities were the places where most of Jesus' miracles had taken place and where his ministry time was spent. Yet these cities or people from these cities were among the pilgrims here in Jerusalem. And many came to Jesus for what he could do for them, not what he could do about their sin. And it's not that there weren't any legitimate followers among them, or at least those who would later become such. But the fact is, people who come to Jesus and then often turn from Jesus, as the parable of the soils tell us, is because they came to him for the wrong reason in the first place. 
Listen, if you know you're a sinner and you know you need a savior and you come to Jesus with this understanding, you're going to have the things you came to him for. But if you don't want a savior and don't want a Lord, then you cannot expect the salvation that he offers either. Now, if you come to him to conquer human enemies and glorify you in this life with riches and prominence, you've come to him for the wrong reason and you'll depart in disappointment. Even as many had a change of heart in this very group as they found out what following Jesus was actually all about. Listen, that's why people fall away today. They come for the signs and the show, not for confession of sin and repentance. Amen. I don't know if you said anything or not, but I'll just believe that you did by faith. Let's look at verse 19. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, in essence, what the Pharisees were saying, if we don't do something about this guy, we're going to lose our place of prominence among the people. And what they missed was the fact that Jesus came to die. They weren't going to kill him. He said in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. The idiot is talking about is his own life. And if we remember the record of Jesus, they had sought to make him king before, but it wasn't the right day. It had to be this day that Jesus publicly accepted the title of he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, It was also true that the Pharisees had plotted to kill him before this. They tried to stone him, but it wasn't the right time. Jesus came to die on the Passover and not a moment sooner. He would surrender his life for our sins, and he was in full control of what moment and day and hour that would come to pass. Now, the Pharisees clearly were a powerful group, and what they said Many of the people just instantly heeded because they said it. But their power was impure, for it was human power based on manipulation and not divine power based on the pure wisdom that comes from above. Now in Luke 19, 11 to 14, as they heard these things were told, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear when? Immediately, or Psalm 2 would be fulfilled immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants and delivered to them 10 minas and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens, what? Hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now the parable was meant to expose the dark hearts of the Pharisees and their vast love of position. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces, Jesus would say. They loved the amens to their pretentious prayers, Jesus would also indict, which would lead them to say, we're not going to have this man rule over us as our king. And that is what they're saying in verse 19. They wanted nothing to do with this king, for they too would be subject to his reign and his authority. 
Now, this is why many people reject Jesus today. In spite of the evidence, in spite of the things that he is continuing to do today. And it's also why some depart from him after a feigned commitment to him. And that is just this. Listen, here's our third consideration this Palm Sunday morning. Rejecting Jesus is to deny his right and authority to define truth. Rejecting Jesus is to deny his right and authority to define truth. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 tells us that Jesus is the creator of all things. He was present and active during the creation period, the six days. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his labors or he rested. And all things were created by him and through him and for him. And nothing was made that was made without him. And therefore, if you are the creator of all things... You have authority over all things. You have the authority to define morality. You have the, def- the authority to declare that which is true. Now, this type of attitude wasn't exceptional to the Pharisees only because we see this attitude around us today. And thus, Jesus said in John three nineteen, this is the condemnation. that light has come into the world and men love what? Darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Now, the evidence being overwhelming. The reasons and necessity of Jesus coming into the world made clear. But people reject him for the same reasons the Pharisees wanted to kill him. They don't want anybody to take over the throne of their lives but themselves. They don't want a standard of right and wrong to be imposed on them outside of their own opinion. And this is what is manifested today, proven through the many foolish things that people will believe. Things unproven, obvious fables and lies, things just downright ridiculous and corny that people will foolishly believe. Yet, many do today because they're just going to reject an authority greater than themselves just like the Pharisees. So let's wrap up our text in time this morning, looking at John 20, or 12, 20 through 26. Let's keep reading. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now, here's where things begin to turn. Here's where the thinking of people begins to change. The people are thinking conquest. Jesus is talking cross. The people are thinking overthrowing Rome. Jesus is talking overcoming sin. The people are thinking self-rule and prominence. Jesus is talking self-denial and sacrifice. And he now introduces into this frenzy for conquest his own death. In John 12, 37, he says, But although he'd done so many signs before them, they did not what? They didn't believe in him. 
And now all of a sudden, when the signs became just that, signs of his messiahship, not signals of a government overthrow, and his death mentioned an implied death to self that is required of all of his followers, the tables begin to turn, hearts begin to burn, when Jesus reveals that he's not going to do what they wanted him to do. And based on what is recorded in verses 27 to 50, it's clear that the people are thinking, what's all this talk about death and service? We have that under Rome. It's freedom and rule, not submission and servanthood that we're looking for. And Jesus says through an illustration, an agrarian illustration, you have to die to produce grain. And that was the last straw for the people. Because the fact is, what was in their hearts is what is in the hearts of many people today. And many people today reject Jesus in spite of the evidence. Others come for the wrong reasons and still others reject the place of a higher authority. And this leads us to one remaining truth that is dominant, sadly, even within the church today. And it is is the cause of the swing towards atheism in our country, at least in part, and the growing denial and rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that is this. And it's the expectation of Jesus is simply this. People want on earth what is promised in heaven. People want on earth what is promised in heaven. I was telling the crowd up in uh, Lindsay, California, a couple of weeks ago, there's a very famous book out by the pastor of the largest church in America called Your Best Life Now. Listen, if this is the best we got, what a bummer that is. We have another life coming, amen? But people want on earth what is promised in heaven. Many people today want a God who is more like a genie than the Jehovah of the Bible. And this is why we have people, in essence, figuratively, tearing pages out of Scripture, twisting Scripture, accepting only the red letters as divinely inspired, or twisting the Word of God to say what it is they want. And the funny thing about the red letter group, those who say, we should only read the words of Jesus, it seems as though they ignore the red letters in the book of Revelation, which are actually the only words Jesus directed to the church that are recorded in the Bible. Constant calls to repentance. Constant reminders of things that are pleasing to him and displeasing to him. But the red letter crowd seems to ignore what Jesus said to the church. Now, Jesus came to the Jew first. Amen? That's what the Bible says. Jesus came to the Jew first. And what the Gospels record are the interactions of Jesus with the Jews and the occasional half-Jew, like the woman at the well, or the Gentile, like the Roman centurion. As some say today, the evidence is too overwhelming to deny that there is a God, but rather than look to his word to find out about him, they determine in their minds what he should be and what he should do, and then they reject anything that is recorded in the Bible that is contrary to their image or opinion of God. Now, this is why people did not believe even having seen many signs. Jesus wasn't what they wanted him to be. Now, there are multiple groups today who are highlighting signs and wonders. And God is still doing miracles today. Amen? He is still healing today. And there are a bevy of signs for us to look at that are all recorded in Scripture that tell us that he is coming soon. But sadly, 
what many want to do today in order to validate the claims of the Bible and highlight the deity of Jesus is for the Holy Spirit to perform tricks and put on a show in the midst of a sanctuary or a meeting to say, see, this is who the Lord is. But the fact is, we were just told people saw a myriad of signs, yet they still did not believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by signs and wonders. Hearing by the word of God. Now, not much has changed since the day of the triumphal entry. People still ignore incontrovertible evidence. Or they come to him for things that are outside of why he came for. Or some just flat out reject. I don't want a higher authority in my life which I believe is the most significant group of our day, who say, yes, I believe in God, but this is what I believe about Him. This is my image of Him, no matter what the Bible or Christians may say. He lets me do what I want, and He promised to supply my every need. He wants my life to be painless and prosperous, and He protects me from all trials and tribulations. Can you find those Verses substantiate or those thoughts substantiated in Scripture? No, in this life you will have tribulation. Now listen, He didn't come to protect us from tribulation. He came to protect us through tribulation. We're going to have those things in our life. As Jesus said in John 16, 33, as we just mentioned, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So how can we arrive at the Lord only wants you to be blessed. He never wants you to have a trial. He only wants you to be financially and materially prosperous. When Paul would later say, you know, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. And then he would go on to say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Meaning whether there's a bounty or where there is famine, Paul is saying the Lord will get me through. He didn't say that because I'm an apostle, because I am obedient to God, because I preach Christ and am crucified, I am free from all troubles in this life. People want today what is promised in heaven. This is not your best life. It's not even remotely close. And our pursuit is not to have your best life now, meaning health and prosperity. Our goal is to go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now Psalm 14.1, the psalmist says, King David writing, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, it's interesting because if you note the words there is or in italics, they are implied, meaning not in the original manuscripts. So we could read this as the fool has said in his heart, no God, no, I'm not going to do what you have asked me to do. And then the psalmist goes on to say they are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. Next three words, read them. No, not one. This is God's assessment of mankind. This is what he looks down and sees upon the earth. And yet with that knowledge, 
He still sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to demonstrate a love that is greater than any love or relationship that can be expressed by man by dying for the ungodly. Now, with that assessment of mankind, this is God's offer to mankind. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if, say the next word, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. God's assessment of man has passed away because we are in Christ, made completely new. Behold, all things have become new. Listen, this is true for every single person who has ever been born again. So here's the question. Have you been born again? This is a time of year where people consider the message of the Bible. They may not know everything about Resurrection Sunday. They may not know everything about Good Friday. They may not know everything or even anything about Palm Sunday. But people know that this is one of the times of year where you ought to be going to church. And therefore, the church needs to be telling those who come that there is a way to be saved. And the Savior came not to make them prosperous, not to make them healthy, but rather to make them holy so they can live forever in heaven. And that's where our best life is. And listen, if you're not in Christ, you're not a new creation. If you're not in Christ, all things have not passed away. If you're not in Christ, all things have not become new. Now, with God's offer, I have to say, with what Psalm 14.1 said, you'd have to be a fool to say no to becoming a new creation. There is no more foolish decision in light of all the evidence that we have, much of which we just presented this morning. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about the things that we know for sure. As I said, he was prophesied to be born in Jerusalem or Bethlehem rather, and he was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said he'd be born of a virgin, and he was born of a virgin. The Bible says in Isaiah 11 that he would be called a Nazarene. He was called a Nazarene. The Bible says through Hosea that he would be called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. What happened when Joseph had a dream? Where did he take Jesus and Mary? He took them down to Egypt until Herod died. And out of Egypt, God called his son. The evidence just keeps mounting and mounting and mounting that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And listen, it's absolutely foolish to deny the evidence because it is all there. So I encourage you, don't be among the fools. I know many of your faces are familiar and you are here and many of you are on fire, born again, love Jesus, and you have the spirit of the living God in you. But I have to throw out the question, so to speak, are you born again? Not you who have the spirit of God in you. Listen, when God saves, he sends his spirit into those whom he saves, according to Ephesians chapter one. It is a guarantee of your future inheritance where the best life awaits you and it is eternal life in immortal incorruptibility. So listen, it's a matter of whether or not you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you that is evidence of the fact that you've been born again. That's what born again means. It means born spiritually. And if you're not born spiritually, then you are among those who have said no to God, at least this point in time. And I encourage you to change your position this morning, to give your life to Christ, to see him for who the Bible has presented him 
to be. It's not about your opinion. Doesn't matter what you think God ought to be. Doesn't matter what you think God ought to do. I love what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, God, or this is God's universe, and he does what he pleases. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Listen, our opinions are absolutely irrelevant. If God said this is how it is, this is how it is. Because he's God, the supreme being, the supernatural creator of all things. And if the Lord said, you must be born again, then the only conclusion to arrive at is, you must be born again. Now with born again comes the forgiveness of sins, the repentance of them and from them, and the filling of the Spirit and living as a new creation in Christ from that time forward. You see, we have a world that is in love with labels. We love to classify the church and Christians, but there's only one kind of Christian, and it's a born-again Christian. You must be born again. Jesus said to a man very knowledgeable of the Scriptures, Nicodemus, who came to him by night. So, friends, I want to make sure you understand fully, especially those of you who may be visiting this morning or maybe haven't made a commitment to Christ. We don't have to wait until Resurrection Sunday to get saved. You can get saved today. You can become a new creation today. And if you don't know that that is the reality concerning you, I suggest you do so tomorrow. No. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Amen. So bow your heads with me, please, this morning. Father, we are thankful for the evidence that has been presented to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that no one here turns their back on truth, God, as we have seen it portrayed so clearly. Lord, we thank you that we can also note that even though there were a great many signs, including raising someone from the dead that people saw, but it wasn't that which caused the conversion, Lord. It was your teaching, your proof of deity, Lord, you dwelling among them, as John would say, but Lord, always teaching about the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom on earth, but the kingdom of heaven. So Lord, I pray for those who may have any interest this morning in being forgiven, to have their life transformed miraculously and instantaneously, and to submit to you as Savior and as Lord, and live the rest of their days for you, that you would do that which you promised to do in Proverbs 24, to rescue those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. I pray, Lord, that there would be commitments to you this morning, if need be. And before we close and conclude our time, I'm just going to ask, if you have weighed the evidence this morning, if you have examined your own life and, you know, God's statement over humanity is true for us all when we're apart from Christ. If you don't know that Christ is your Savior, if you don't know that he is your Lord, if you don't know that your sin has been forgiven, if you're not sure that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and you are a new creation in Christ and old things have passed away for you, you need to make sure of that this morning, right now, right here, because I believe Jesus could come back for his church at any moment, and then all hell is going to break loose on earth. Now, a lot of people say, well, you're talking escapism. Well, Jesus said we ought to be considering or concerned about being found worthy to escape the time that is coming upon the whole world. 
But the fact is, you need to be reconciled to God because you're separated from him by sin. So if you would like to accept God's offer of salvation through the proof that we have provided this morning through Scripture, if you would like to say, yes, I want my sin forgiven. I want to know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I want to live the rest of my days on this earth until the Lord comes for us all or me for his name's sake and glory and do his will. I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand up this morning and say, I see it. I accept God's offer of forgiveness for my sins. And I want to live for him from this day forward. God bless you. Anybody else? Lift up your hand high where I can see it this morning. God bless you and you. Anyone else? God bless you. Anyone else this morning? Don't let this moment get by, please. If you're not sure, God bless you. Raise your hand this morning and say, yes, I see it. I accept God's offer of forgiveness. And I want to walk in the light from this day forward. Anyone else before we close? And Father, we are so grateful that that which you wrote was made manifest this morning. That saving faith would come through hearing the word of God. And that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And you've sent your son, the word, into the world to save sinners. So we thank you. We have your word verified and validated before our very eyes this morning. And I pray for these who lifted their hands to say yes to you. Yes to forgiveness. Yes to repentance. Yes to living differently than they used to by the power of the spirit within them. I pray, Lord, that even now, God, we know that you save always through the blood of Jesus. But we know the transformation part is different for most people. But I pray for an instantaneous, radical, question-causing transformation in the lives of these here this morning. That the question would be asked this day and beyond, what happened to you? What changed you? Why are you so radically different than you were the last time I saw you? Lord, I pray you baptize these in your spirit as you even fill them. And Lord, that they would walk in the gifts that you have appropriated to and for them. And Lord, that they would be living proof that they are new creations in Christ from this day forward. Thank you for still saving souls and still being unwilling that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So we thank you for your word this Palm Sunday morning. Thank you for riding into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, lowly on a donkey, to come and make peace between God and man. Thank you that you're still doing so in this very room today. We give you all glory and honor in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.